Leadership Next is powered by the folks at Deloitte, who, like me, are super focused on how CEOs can lead in the context of disruption and devolving societal expectations. Welcome to Leadership Next, the podcast about the changing rules of business leadership. Our guest today is Ajay Banga. He is the CEO of MasterCard. He's one of the best examples I know of of this new breed of CEOs, CEOs who sincerely want to focus their company's superpowers on addressing some of society's deepest problems. Ajay's particular passion is for financial inclusion, and under his leadership, MasterCard has launched something like 1,500 different financial inclusion projects that touch 500 million people in 80 different countries. We're going to talk about that in a minute. Ajay says this isn't about philanthropy. It's about building sustainable businesses that have social impact. It's about aligning the business's goals with society's needs. Ajay, thank you so much for joining Leadership Next. It's a pleasure, Alan. Thank you for having me. Uh, So we have a lot to talk about, but I want to start with the story of the moment, COVID-19. How is the pandemic affecting MasterCard? Well, I think, first of all, it affects everybody. It affects businesses. It affects people, society, economies. It's just, you know, lives, work, trade, and economies have all been disrupted. And I feel that it's one thing that's come across clearly to me is that we were all unprepared for this kind of a circumstance. And whether that situation of being unprepared came from a lack of planning or it came from a failure of imagination or it came from hubris or it came from a combination of all of those, it has led to, I think, a clear demonstration to everyone of how interconnected our world really is and how small it is and how what affects one impacts everybody. I think it behoves all of us to pay attention to that as we go forward, no matter how it directly impacts your company or your space. Now, MasterCard itself, there's an obvious business impact. People are not traveling. Clearly, if you're not traveling, that changes a great deal. Clearly, if you're in lockdown mode and you cannot go to restaurants to eat out, or you cannot go to theaters, or you cannot be out watching a movie, or going to to a Disney park, that changes how you choose to spend your money. But people are doing things with their money that do also get facilitated by our rails. So be it their grocery spending or their pharmaceutical spending or their changed approach to consuming alcohol at home or their circumstances around charitable giving or how many dumbbells and... uh, exercise bikes they're buying, all that does also get facilitated by our rails. So there's a put and a take, if you know what I mean, on how people are spent. Yeah, what's the net, Ajay? I mean, if you look at March, are transactions down substantially? And if so, by how much? So we put our public data, Alan, when we were doing our uh, sort of pre-release of our quarter results, and we talked about how January was a good month, February was kind of half of that, and March was just worth every single week. And in terms of transaction volume, as well as number of transactions, I think what you'll find is that that's beginning to plateau at a certain level. And now the question really is, we call this the containment phase, which is kind of, you know, not the health term is containing the virus, which is this that yeah. turn the curve. Ours is that's the containment, the reaction of that on our business. 
this is the containment phase. Yeah, you have your own curve to flatten. Yeah, and then <laughs> there'll be a stabilization phase. You could assume China is beginning to go through that. And then my point of view is that after that, we'll get a, a normalization phase. Normal as in those things that begin to recover to look like what they used to look before the virus came our way. And then you'll come to a real growth phase, which I think is out somewhere in the distance. And then the question becomes, is this U-shaped or V-shaped? Yeah. So when you say it's out somewhere in the distance, how far in the distance? Are we talking your best guess, six months, a year, two years? What do you think? I mean, my guess is that the growth phase, which is the real end game here, is out towards the second part of next year. Yeah. I think you're going to go through containment, some slip back, stabilization, some slip back, some normalcy. I think some aspects will be more challenged to come to normalcy. Would Alan and his family go ziplining in an exotic destination in a hurry? I don't know. Yeah, we actually had a cruise in the Galapagos scheduled for uh, June. Uh, I don't know when that will come back. Yes, I am not a believer personally in a V-shaped phase. I'm a believer more when you take all the puts and takes, more like a U-shaped phase of recovery. Hence the end of next year. Now, back to your first question on Impacted MasterCard. That was on the transaction side of our business. Interestingly, on the data analytics, AI, cybersecurity side of the business, there is actually considerable increased volume of demand. Fascinating. Mostly caused by merchants, banks, and governments looking for ways to connect into the new reality and get deep insights into how they should prioritize their resources in a changed circumstance. So governments you know, around the world are wanting to know how it's impacting business. They're wanting our help in distributing stimulus funds. They want our help in keeping their systems and ecosystems safe in cyber terms and so on. So that kind of stuff is actually a tailwind in our sales. Fascinating. Fascinating. Well, that's what I wanted to ask you about next. You know, you and I were together at the Fortune Dinner in Davos in January. And at that time, we were just hearing the first reports about the virus in Wuhan. Uh, We now know that this is going to have a profound effect on the world. And I'd like to get your view on what it looks like when we get out. Maybe not Davos next year, but Davos two years from now, January of, of 2022. How is the world different? And one part of that is the question you were just talking about. Is this actually going to accelerate digitization and the adoption of new technologies? So I think it's very hard. There's no clear crystal ball here, right, on how this will go. Just as there is no real clarity of the V-shaped versus the U-shaped. My general perspective on digitization has been that there are many factors coming together which are creating enormous tailwinds for digitization. And I think 5G is one of those that currently has dropped from the lexicon of conversations but should come right back in. Yeah, because I believe that 5G will enable a whole different connectivity, whether it's streaming capability or the fact that every device will be speaking to other devices. And that makes every device capable of being a device of commerce. And what this this COVID-19 has done is it's probably made people feel more comfortable with digital technology across the spectrum of their own proclivities prior to going into the crisis. I think that 
you know, with older people, younger people, more educated people, less educated people, I think their willingness to embrace digital is beginning to get a second impetus. So when 5G enables devices, and this crisis has enabled people's minds to embrace the idea, I think that's a pretty perfect storm for an accelerator on digitization. That, I believe, will come. Yeah, that is fascinating. I'm here with Joe Yukazoglu, the CEO of Deloitte US, which is the sponsor of this podcast. Joe's one of the most thoughtful people I've met on the topics we discuss here every week. Joe, thanks for joining. Alan, pleasure to be with you. Joe, every crisis creates opportunities and great challenges spark even greater innovation. How should leaders make the most of the current crisis and the current challenge? Alan, if I look at our own organization at Deloitte, we have over 300,000 professionals around the globe who have virtualized the firm overnight, maintaining continuity of exceptional service to our clients. And we're advising our clients right now to devote the right energy to each phase of what lies ahead. There is certainly the near term of responding and recovering, but after that, you want to be positioned to thrive. Yeah, that's really interesting, Joe. We're not going to return to normal. We're preparing for a new normal. We are. And while it is unfortunate that these challenging and tragic circumstances are serving as the catalyst, there can be no doubt that the new ways of working, the new ways of delivering within a complex value chain are going to fundamentally change the way in which work is accomplished forever. Joe, thanks for being part of it. And thanks for your sponsorship of this podcast. Alan, it's a privilege. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Leadership Next. Co-host Ellen McGirt here. We'll head back to Alan and MasterCard CEO Ajay Banga in just a few minutes. But first, I wanted to dig a bit more into the conversation they were having before the break about the economic recovery. Here to help me do that is Kate Moore, head of thematic strategy at BlackRock. Kate, welcome to Leadership Next. Thanks for having me, Ellen. I'm glad to be here. So I can't be the only person in your life who needs counsel at this time. What's the single most urgent question your clients have as the coronavirus pandemic winds on? I think the biggest question that a lot of clients have right now, honestly, given the fact that the market has recovered so dramatically from the lows, is whether or not this is a false recovery. Everyone's sort of mistrustful of the data and realizing that we don't have a great sense for how long this slowdown in economic activity is going to last whether or not they should be investing money now or should they be holding off for some you know, future market weakness. You know, what I'd like to say is this is not the time to be focused on trying to time the market. This is a great time to be doing homework on the companies and on the business models that are going to really lead the economy over the next 12, 24 months and not necessarily over the next three. One of the things I didn't have on my crisis bingo card was a global pandemic and a healthcare-led recession. Let's start with the healthcare sector. What's your outlook there? What should we be looking for? So I have to tell you that healthcare has been a sector that we have been really constructive on for a considerable period of time. The challenge that a lot of these companies faced was scrutiny, particularly on the regulatory side and the pressure that might have had on their future earnings. I think as we see all of these, not just U.S., but global healthcare companies come together with solutions and work together with governments 
that we will have less regulatory pressure going forward. Healthcare is without a doubt one of my favorite sectors over that time period I was mentioning a moment ago, more like the 12 to 24 months. Are there any other sectors in the economy that you see are poised to bounce back first or are maybe just less rocked by what's been happening? There are some sectors, but I think also bigger themes across sectors that we can pay very close attention to. Technology is an obvious and easy answer. You have companies that can operate in an environment where people are physically and socially distanced. You have companies that are, you know, have a culture of innovation and uh, investment in R&D that will lead, I think, to you know, interesting long-term solutions to this crisis as well as to the new work environment. And you also have what was starting off as a very strong balance sheets for many of the companies in the sector. Not as much debt as some other sectors, good amounts of cash on hand, and you know, lower consistent cost bases. So, you know, you had this sort of trifecta of like great businesses in the right place at the right time, being able to provide future solutions and better balance sheets. So I really love tech, even though a lot of people love tech. And I would say sometimes it feels like a crowded trade. But I want to go into that third point I just made around balance sheets, Ellen, because I think this is important. Companies that have done a really good job of maintaining cash balances, of being nimble and not being overly leveraged are going to be best positioned to take advantage of a recovery when it does happen. So is this part of your homework that you mentioned earlier, studying not only how nimble businesses are now, but how they're changing the way they operate moving forward? Yeah, that's exactly right. And that's where I'm trying to spend a lot of time thinking about which companies are looking at this current environment and saying, how do I recover the demand that I had in January or February of 2020? And which companies are looking at this environment and asking the question, what do I need to do to really cater to different consumers, changing behavior, and how do I maintain flexibility? And it's that second group that I'm seeing a lot of interesting investment uh, opportunities. And I have to say, this is a great time to sort of step back and ask a question, not about what the size of the overall economy is going to be coming out of this crisis, but I like to think about it as looking at the makeup of that pie of the economy, which slices are going to be larger, uh, which slices are going to be smaller, and where will we have new slices created? And as I talk to company management teams, and we talk to experts, and I work with my analysts, you're starting to see innovation and change and investment already happen for that new future. So I would say that's one area of optimism I have, despite this really difficult environment. So do you have a good working definition of innovation that you use to help flag ideas, concepts, companies, or even leaders who are poised to do well going forward? Well, when I think about innovation and innovators, I think about, you know, companies and people who look at a problem and don't see a problem. They see an opportunity. And these companies and these individuals make the decision that this is a bit of a game, that they are going to figure out the best way to take advantage of a discontinuous, or in some cases, evolutionary change in the environment around them. I also want to talk about the human cost of the pandemic and how the disease and the response to the disease has revealed tremendous inequities between people here in the United States. Black and brown communities have been decimated and continue to be decimated as we see incredibly unequal outcomes. So I'm curious about how you or the management teams that you're talking to think about that, not just people as consumers, but the health of populations as a whole and how that fits into their overall strategies. 
this is a, a very, very important question. Okay, so let me put it this way. For as optimistic as I am around innovation and that we're seeing companies and individuals, entrepreneurs not wasting this crisis, there are some other things that really worry me from both a societal as well as economic lens. And, you know, first and foremost is what's happening in the labor market. So there are kind of two groups of unemployed at the moment. Those that are temporarily unemployed, where companies have laid them off so they can receive unemployment benefits or have been furloughed, all expecting that to be finite periods of time. And then there's the other group, which have been laid off because perhaps their businesses are more structurally impaired and we're unlikely to see any kind of recovery in that space in the foreseeable future. And increasingly, we're seeing some of the lower paid and unskilled labor fall into that second camp. They may not be rehired. And once the extraordinary benefits from unemployment insurance wear off, I worry that we're going to have such a permanent and persistent loss of income for this group that it's going to really separate out the haves and have-nots in the workforce even more. It seems to me there are cross-currents in this crisis. Uh, yes, it, it, you know, with millions, what the latest numbers, almost 20 million people in the U.S. applying for unemployment insurance, there are going to be more people in trouble on the one hand. But on the other hand, companies are in trouble, and it's very difficult for them to focus on anything other than their financial survival. So how do those cross-currents play out in this crisis? I mean, I, look, I, I believe that the first thing you have to do is to look after your people, right? I mean, when we were talking about the impact on MasterCard, we talked about the business impact. But in actual fact, where management attention and board attention went first was people. Managing their safety, but even more importantly, we told all our people there will be no layoffs because of COVID-19. And we've made that clear, emphatically so. In fact, we've even gone out and told the people we were recruiting as management trainees in the September cycle out of graduate schools and undergrad that, by the way, your jobs are fair. And I think that is all part of thinking through inclusion because inclusion is a fancy word for human decency. I believe that digitization is a mechanism to deliver inclusive growth, but digitization is also the vehicle that people who are left out may feel even further left out. Because if you don't have an identity, if you don't have a bank account, if you don't have access to what you and I take for granted, you cannot even pay a bill online. You can't get a driver's license. You can't do anything. You've got to go stand in a queue to pay your electrical bill. You've got to take your social security check to a check casher to get your own money and pay a certain amount of money to get it. That makes you even further left out in a digitized world, which assumes that you have an account, which assumes that you possess an identity of some type. And so I feel like while digitization enables inclusion, it can also raise the barrier. And we all, all of us, have got to make sure that we use this impetus towards digitization to get the right thing to happen, to yeah. redouble our efforts on inclusive growth. That's yeah. why we have said we will commit half of the money we had originally committed to our MasterCard Impact Fund that we got from the tax cuts that the U.S. government gave us. We said we're going to put a certain amount of money, $100 million a year, 
for five years pre-committed, took 250 out of that and put that towards small business in this crisis because they are the engine of employment and they are the engine of inclusion in a commercial sense. Yeah. We put another amount of money into a therapeutic accelerator with the Gates Foundation and the Welcome Trust because in my view, without finding a therapeutic solution quickly enough, that U-shape we were talking about in the recovery will be a very shallow U. If we get a therapeutic drug or some of them which are easy to make and easy to distribute and easy to administer, we have a better chance of getting into a better recovery than waiting for a vaccine, which by the nature of the beast is probably a year and a half to two years. So I'm trying to put our company's money where our mouth is. What's the total uh, investment if you look at both the small business initiative? And- small business is 250 million. Yep. The therapeutic accelerator was started by Gates, Welcome, and us with a $125 million corpus. And it's now added up and reached more because a few others have joined. Michael Dell has joined, for example. Madonna has joined. And a few others are joining. We are hopeful to get to what Bill Gates wants to get to is 300 plus million because that creates the scale to push this accelerator forward. That's the idea. Yeah, uh, good for you, Ajay. I mean, both in guaranteeing your workers that they have a job and in in putting money towards uh, solving the crisis. But as you well know, not everyone can do that. Uh, the New York Times had a piece recently looking at the furloughs at Marriott, where what hotel bookings yeah. are down 75 percent or uh, the layoffs at Macy's where stores are closed and essentially said that this showed that the whole business roundtable move towards stakeholder capitalism was a bunch of BS. It was just hypocritical because these workers are without jobs. How do you think about that? I disagree with that conclusion only because I think if Macy's was to close down completely and go bankrupt, how would that be a better solution for their employees or any other stakeholder, not just their shareholder. I think stakeholder capitalism does not mean that you should close down. I think Macy's is going through a real crisis. Any store of that, the chain of that type is going through it. And I think they're trying to deal with it in a responsible way. So I actually believe that you cannot say one size fits all at a time like this. Those of us whose companies have better balance sheets and a business model that is hurt, but not as hurt as others, we've got to step up even more to the plate and be willing to prove that capitalism is a good model and that capitalism will weed out inefficiency and efficiency, but capitalism does provide you with the headroom to do the right thing. I'm just a believer in capitalism. It's the best system. Done well, done responsibly, it is an outstanding system. And all I'm trying to say is, for companies like us that can afford to step up to the plate, even though our business is hurting as well, we can step up to the plate, and we are, through the small business support, through the therapeutics accelerator, through our commitment to our employees, both for their safety, but also their jobs. So you got to do the right thing. If you do the right thing, you will come out the other end in a better place. Well, that's what I was going to ask. You wrote a piece for Fortune last year in which you said that this approach to capitalism in the long term will deliver better shareholder returns. Now, you've done a a good job by your shareholders. I think your stock price before the crisis was up up 16 times over your tenure. I don't know where it is now. 
13 and a half times. <laughs> yeah, okay. So that's still pretty good. But you believe strongly that in the long run, that will be better for shareholders as well as for society. Yes, Alan. But I believe that you can't do it by yourself. You need partnerships. You need public-private partnerships, private-private partnerships. So let me give you an example. We designed something called City Key, which is kind of like a, a hybrid ID and payment card that uses our current network of vendor partnerships and a bunch of prepaid companies. And we've now worked that with, say, the city of Los Angeles, and now it's heading out into the whole state of California to do two or three things, to distribute and disperse resources to those the politician, the government wants to reach, but also to enable donations into that resource pool by using a donation platform. We did all this, by the way, in eight days for LA. We went from nothing, from a conversation with the mayor, to eight days later, we had the donation platform up, we had the city key program going. Yeah. I think that's pretty cool. That's, now, I, but I couldn't do that alone. If yeah. he hadn't been willing to take two steps forward, I couldn't do this. Yeah. And so you need partnerships. Uh, Ajay, one of the things that's that's come under the spotlight in this crisis in the inclusive growth conversation is executive compensation. You've done very well by the company, and in return, the company has treated you very well. I, I don't know. It's a couple hundred million in total compensation over the 10-year period. Is that fair? Is that a problem? How do you respond to this uh, debate over the level of executive compensation. Everybody deserves to be asked the question and asked that question themselves. There's nothing wrong with that debate. I think all debates are fair game. My general view is that if you tie your compensation to shareholder return, and at the same time, you ensure that other stakeholders in the company, meaning your partners and your employees and your colleagues are also getting paid well, and getting the right opportunities to grow, then I believe you're doing the right thing. The only place that gets a little twisted is when you talk about uh, uh, share buybacks, where you're not creating you're not creating new value at the company. You're just boosting the share price, which could boost your compensation at some companies. Well, we can come we can come to buybacks, but for a minute, think of this: we have publicly declared that every woman in our company earns the same as a man for the same work, and I think. That gives me the space to feel like I am caring for my employees. Second, stock ownership in our company is not limited to the senior most executives. In fact, it was 11 years ago when I became CEO, but with the cooperation of my board, we now give stock to close to 70, 75% of our employees wow. almost every year. Wow. Impressive. And so guess what? Everybody's in this with me. I have not done it, by the way. It takes a village to make this happen. But the fact is, people recognize that they have shared in the wealth creation opportunity that this company's stock has provided to all of us. And what so, about the buyback? About what about the buyback question, which isn't so much wealth? So my free. view of buyback yeah. is very simple. I first dedicate my excess capital to running the company well and managing its risk and its balance sheet. The second thing I do is I buy things. You look at us, we're one of the most acquisitive companies around. Last year, we bought nine or 10 different organizations. Third is when I come to returning capital to shareholders. And we return it both through dividends and through buybacks. And that's what we've been doing. I give it back to shareholders saying, if I don't have a good use of the capital, take your money and go use it elsewhere. And that's all I'm doing. In fact, 
That's the purpose. And in fact, during the course of this crisis, we're all going to have to consider how to reallocate our excess capital. Will buybacks remain as important? I don't think so. Will Fortress balance sheet be even more important? I think so. I think companies like ours will actually be able to acquire other companies who may not be as well capitalized over the course of this crisis. And I think that will be a better use of my shareholders' money than a buyback. Yeah, I, I mean, I mean, the issue. We don't have to get into this in detail, but the issue was whether then, if 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 the stock appreciation that that boosts your pay and boosts your employees' pay comes from buybacks, should that somehow be excluded from the calculation? Should only only if you can directly connect a buyback to stock appreciation. Ajay, thank you so much for being on Leadership Next. Thank you very much, Alan. Good luck. Be well. Leadership Next is edited by Nicole Vergala, written by me, Alan Murray, along with my amazing colleagues, Ellen McGirt and Megan Arnold. Our theme is by Jason Snell. Executive producers are Mason Cohn and Megan Arnold. Leadership Next is a production of Fortune Media. Leadership Next episodes are produced by Fortune's editorial team. The views and opinions expressed by podcast speakers and guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Deloitte or its personnel, nor does Deloitte advocate or endorse any individuals or entities featured on the episodes. Hey, Leadership Next listeners. There's more C-suite insight available now at the all-new Fortune. You'll find expert curation, exclusive videos, and clear analysis on topics ranging from AI to digital health. Subscriptions start at less than a dollar a week. Visit fortune.com slash subscribe and discover why it pays to know.